Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, observing the National Heat Illness Prevention Campaign's three words for helping to keep safe, water, rest, shade. More by searching OSHA.gov heat. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks FA, we find out about a couple of cloud programs that position Hawaii to be cloud ready. We'll talk about the adoption of cloud technologies and what it takes to prepare the workforce to find jobs in this growing field. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual Will Weinstein Ethics Conversation Series examines ethics of capitalism and inequality July 19th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash Weinstein. won't he? That question about which bills Governor David Ige planned to veto or sign was made clear yesterday. HPR Sabrina Bowden joins us in studio to talk about what was on that veto list and what got a reprieve. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So Governor Ige had originally intended to veto 30 bills. He has announced that he will veto 26 and line item veto 2. So that's 28 of the 30 original bills. Some notable bills were related to flipper tobacco, which was House Bill 1570, and one bill related to expanding the Department of Human Services uh, that was going to expand their ability to investigate families, and that was House Bill 2424. And that was the one that was named for uh, Isabel Ariel mm-hmm. uh, Kalua. Yes, they called that Ariel's Bill. Um, and he said that he felt that it was too much pressure on the department and he would rather see more resources go to the Department of Human Services rather than legislation. Yeah, that very sad story of the missing child. Uh, her body has not yet been found and the parents are, are still uh, in the court system awaiting trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what else did uh, the governor do yesterday? So the governor had originally intended to veto a bill that would require tour operators to um, report flight details to the Department of Transportation. Um, And after speaking to Congressman Ed Case, he actually decided not to veto that. And that was Senate Bill 3272. um, And it would also create an air noise and safety task force. But um, the governor actually decided not to veto that. um, And here he is talking a little bit about it. Noise from low-flying aircraft is a big concern in our community um, all across the state. And I believe that the task force can help communicate concerns and develop solutions to address this issue. I did have the opportunity to uh, speak with Congressman uh, Ed Case, and uh, we he did share his efforts to help in this regard. He uh, felt that this measure would be very helpful uh, as he has been working to get the federal agencies to be more active in responding to complaints of noise and low-flying aircraft. So it sounds like uh, the folks that were advocating for that bill will be happy. (laughs) Yes, they will. And uh, what what else uh, did the governor decide to veto? The governor did veto, as intended, um, a bill on cash bail reform that was opposed by mayors, county prosecutors, and law enforcement. Um, And that was House Bill 1567, um, and it would have eliminated cash bail in some cases for nonviolent misdemeanors and Class C felonies. Uh, Ige said that it takes away too much oversight and power from the judicial system. And he says that judges are pretty much already um, not imposing bail on those sorts of uh, felonies. Taking the step uh, in 1567 where uh, bail was not an option for certain classes of, um, of offenses without giving judges discretion um, was a, a leap too far at this point in time. I think that judges are making uh, decisions. We are choosing not to um, place bail on those who are the least uh, disruptive or least uh, danger to society. 
Yeah, and I know with this bill, it was kind of unusual because uh, the lawmaker that introduced it actually also, toward the end, changed his mind and said this was not good uh, and and it should not uh, become law. Mm -hmm. He sent a letter to Ike asking for him to veto it, um, and it seems like Ike had listened to what sort of uh, county prosecutors, mayors, and other people who were against this were saying. And so, uh, so what happens now? So um, Senate and House leadership, so that's uh, Kochi and Scott Psyche, had already said that they're not looking to override any vetoes this year um, and looking to take the next steps in the state ledge uh, next year to sort of figure out what bills they want to get passed. All right. And I guess they'll try again next session. Another stab at it. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Sabrina. We have been talking with HPR's Sabrina Bowden. You can check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. A whistleblower is pointing the finger at a wheel assembly system as a potential problem for Honolulu's rail project. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri joins us with today's reality check. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Well, I found your article interesting because we had just talked to uh, Lori Kahikina from Hart, and uh, I'd asked her about the wheels and the uh, frogs on the system. Yeah, well, so this story today, uh, uh, it's largely based on a, a former consultant for Hart who was working uh, with a company called Stantec, a gentleman named David Walker. Now, Walker reached out to us pretty much as a last resort after having worked on the Hart project, the Honolulu Rail Project, for the past couple of years. Uh, he started in February 2020. And really kind of the gist of this this really lengthy story that, that we lay out is that the issues with the uh, track crossings and the wheels and the frogs that have made the news for the past year, uh, those issues were really known uh, a lot earlier than had initially been detailed. And, uh, you know, Walker had been pushing in his capacity as a, uh, a track consultant, a uh, track engineer. He has over... 50 years in the industry. He'd been pushing for basically an overhaul of the crossings um, and uh, basically fell on deaf ears and he was let go back in February. And so this story basically explores uh, the issues that he brings up. It also relies on records, however, that kind of back up what he has to say. Well, I guess the issue is, uh, you know, you know, I, I think in your story, you, you, you had said that he had questioned why we weren't just getting um, a wheel system, you know, kind of off the shelf, something that was tried and true, and that we were right. using something that hadn't been tested. Yeah. So one of the, the main points he mentions, and, and the, the issue really is how are we going to maintain this system, uh, but that it, it doesn't really follow a lot of the industry standards out there. And what we have created is kind of a... Uh, Frankenstein mix of, of different adjustments that have gradually been made over the years to the track dimensions, uh, to the crossings, to the wheel widths and dimensions all associated. It's all very different. And it has to the, the tolerances on this are so incredibly tight uh, that he's basically saying it's going to be a maintenance nightmare. Uh, and he also points to the uh, the pinpoint crossings that have been in the news called the frogs. Uh, they're using a particular type of frog. Uh, that is based on uh, its design, uh, you know, based on what Walker is saying and what other documents are, are supporting that uh, the speeds that that heart uh, needs for this system at 55 miles per hour, uh, it's too fast for that. And, and that it's actually, you know, you, you need to be going um, a, a bit slower on those based on the crossing designs. Yeah. I mean, you think isn't there like a standard for this stuff? Right. And, you know, there are um, – you know, we looked into uh, what these different – there's a transportation cooperative research program. There's there's um, uh, Hart's own manufacturer put out a study that said, hey, you should really only be going about 21 – or no faster than 21 miles per hour on these frogs based on their – Design uh, the, the manufacturer itself said that that did not come out at the time. Hart did publicize and is sticking with uh, the TTCI study. Uh, this is a consultant that Hart later 
uh, hired, and they gave the all clear. Said you could go as fast as eighty miles per hour uh, on these frog crossings. It's okay, uh, but you know there's certainly some, some um, concerns based on some of the the prior studies of, of these particular frogs and what has been said about how you know how these designs are supposed to work. Uh, that wasn't making, you know, wasn't being publicized uh, back when this was all first coming out. Yeah, because I think the worry now is, okay, if these things don't last, are we going to be constantly outlining money to replace this? And uh, I know you had a line in there about one of the, from one of the board members. It's like they're reinventing the wheel every time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the, the the core issue here is, you know, uh, Dave is saying that this this whole setup that we have should have been overhauled, could have been overhauled. Um, at an affordable cost back in the day, and it's just going to be really troublesome to maintain going forward. Yeah, well, uh, Lori Kaikina, um, I know who's only been at the helm for about a year and a half now, but she just said that the wheels are maybe delayed. They were supposed to come in next month, and it may be now toward the end of the year. So we'll just have to see how this mm-hmm. affects the, the, the tests, the train tests. Um, sure. But thanks so much, Marcel. Sure. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. You can read his story on The Whistleblower. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibition, Taxonomy, Our Lives Depend on It, exploring how naming plants and animals is essential to understanding life's diversity. Opens July 23rd, bishopmuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew McKay, author of Seeking Jordan. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how I learned the truth about death and the invisible universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Hawaii Founder is a program aimed at Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Asian businesswomen. It started during the pandemic, and it provides grants to seed business growth, as well as providing stipends for child and elder care. And now it's looking for local uh, women business owners uh, to participate in its upcoming mentorship program. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with program manager Darian Seguenza. First of all, when you go to foundher.org, on the first page, scroll down about halfway and you can reference the basic criteria that one has to meet in order to qualify for the program. 50% woman operated by Native White Asian Pacific Islander, a for-profit business, early stage, and being in one of our five target industries, tech, fashion, health and wellness, food systems, and education. Once a company reaches those minimum requirements, what we're really looking for is we want to uplift and elevate women in Hawaii that have a positive impact on their communities. We also want to be working with a company that's at the right stage. One to three years is a rough guideline, but a company that is already in operation with a product or service in market, and maybe you've got some customers already, you've got some potential clients, but really needing that extra push and boost to be able to take your business to the next level. So the bulk of the program is virtual. One component is that we have business development workshops that take place on a weekly basis. We also have a lot of different networking opportunities. About every other week, I would bring in a different person to come and speak with the cohort. Their backgrounds varied, mostly all women in leadership in some capacity, some in venture capital, some that just talked about leadership skills, entrepreneurial skills. So we had a lot of opportunity for the companies to meet a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds. In addition, each company is matched up with a couple of mentors that are specific to their industry, but also specific to their growth needs. And that's really an opportunity to speak with someone that's been there, done that, been able to grow their business, has that expertise that you need when making difficult decisions or when you're unsure of what move to make next, that's the person that's going to guide you throughout that six-month period. We also gave a non-dilutive grant to each company. We do not take any equity in exchange. That is a really powerful tool because you need to have the capital to be able to act upon 
the new education that you've received and to be able to take your business to the next level. And then we also offered a care stipend that each company could use however they see fit. So for those that have Keiki or Kapuna that they're taking care of and you know want to be able to participate in the program but have multiple responsibilities, we thought it's very important to provide that support for women holistically. And then we also have in-person retreats. So that's our one in-person component that happens once a month. And those take place over a weekend where the cohort and some of our team come together on a different island each month. We're able to really bring together the network of supporters that we have on each island and make meaningful connections within the cohort and beyond it. So a lot of different components, but it comes together for a really rich experience. Mm -hmm. The program is well thought out, really focused on the fact that, you know, women do deserve a place at the table and really helping these women entrepreneurs have those means of support to get them to a place of success. Yeah, it's it's the whole reason we started this. Two of our founders, Isabella Hughes of Shaka Tea and Gloria Lau, who amongst many things was the former CEO of the YWCA, during the pandemic time reflected on their own experiences and challenges as women of color in the workplace, as entrepreneurs, and thinking about there were no programs designed to really support women holistically. Mentorship is offered in a lot of traditional accelerators, but a lot of them have a very Western-centric model that is not the right kind of support model that we need to really uplift and elevate women in Hawaii. So when we reflected on all of that, that's why we thought the grant, the care stipend, the education, all of those pieces were critical to really creating that supportive environment. And women-led businesses do very well on paper. There's a lot of research out there that there's a higher return on investment, and it just makes sense for the economy, and not only just on a numbers perspective, but every company that we took on and will take on has an interest in doing well and doing good for Hawaii and not being extractive. And so, you know, diversifying our economy in that way and supporting these businesses that are doing well, it just makes sense. And I just really want to encourage anyone that's listening to this, if you're unsure about starting a business, I feel like it's absolutely worth it. And if anyone would like advice or resources on our website, we do have an interest form that you can fill out. But I highly encourage everyone to apply if you're interested by this Friday. We would love to see what you're all working on. That was founder program manager Darian Seguenza talking about how uh, it's helping female business owners in Hawaii. Maui entrepreneur uh, Melilani Jones graduated from the program's first mentorship group this past March. She shares how her journey with the Hawaii founder has come full circle. Being that we're a small business, I do a lot of the work myself. And when I was on one of our routes, avid listener of HPR and NPR right on, I happened to be tuning in and all of a sudden I just heard somebody speaking about this Hawaii found her program. And the play on words, I was just kind of, you know, captured by it. Like, what is this Hawaii found her? They started talking about women entrepreneurs and how underfunded they are, how we only get, you know... 2% of funding, capital funding. I mean, it was really, really wild to hear all of these facts that I had already known and struggled with myself, struggled with getting capital, struggled with getting loans. And once they started talking about, you know, this program on how they're really trying to empower and give resources to Pacifica women here in Hawaii, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like perfect timing. We're in the middle of a pandemic child care, you know, schools have shut down. So a lot of us mothers in business really, really were affected during this time, being the main caregivers. So when I heard all of the requirements, it was just each box got ticked off. I'm a mom, I'm Hawaiian, I have the startup business. And I just thought, you know what, I'm gonna check it out. And I did. And my mom encouraged me to apply and we applied. And I went through the interview process got pushed through and then I got accepted into the cohort, which was such a godsend during that time. I needed help. I needed to really learn how to pivot my business during the pandemic, especially being a full-time mom and business owner. So the resources that we got from this program were absolutely invaluable. I'm so thankful for them. And on top of that, we got a $20,000 grant 
And we got a $4,000 childcare stipend, which was huge because all of those business accelerator programs out there, they typically take, you know, equity out of your company. There's something that you have to give. And this program doesn't ask for that. They're sheer support-driven, community-driven programs. So I was just so thankful for you guys for hearing it so I could hear it. And that's how I found the program. That was how you got your start. You went through the six-month program. You just graduated this past March. Explain your mission. What was your business? Our business, we are Maui's premier cloth diaper delivery service. We provide everything a family needs to properly and efficiently cloth diaper their children. And we actually take all of the dirty work out of cloth diapering. We bring it back to our facility. We launder it. We deliver it to your home weekly. And we have a lot of missions here at Kokua Diaper. So first of all, educating Ohana on diaper waste. People don't realize how much natural resources it takes to actually make a single-use diaper. Just for one diaper, takes one cup of crude oil. So when I became pregnant and I started looking into all these facts, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not contributing to this. There's a better way. I was actually living in New York at the time. My mother, when I became pregnant, she was like, you're going to cloth diaper your child. I said, oh yes, mom, I already looked into it. You did it for all of us. This is the way I'm going. And she said, look and see if there's a diaper service in your area. And I thought, oh, man, those are so old school. Lo and behold, I Googled it, and there was one diaper service in all of New York City, 10 blocks away from my house in Brooklyn. I couldn't believe it. I signed up for a cloth diaper 101, started using the service, and I was just so impressed with how easy it was and how they just alleviated the workload for families to be able to make a sustainable option in diapering their child. You know, something inside of me just told me, you know, I need to come back home and I need to raise my daughter here. And I just, all of a sudden, this light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to learn this business and I'm going to bring it back to Hawaii. Hawaii needs this, like geographically where we are, spatially. It's so important that we really, really start nailing down how we consume things and our waste management. So I packed up my family and came here and within six months we started this business and we're up and running and it's been wonderful a lot of work (laughs) i'm not gonna lie we we wash about 1200 diapers a week so really awesome what we're trying to do and we've diverted gosh almost 200,000 diapers from the landfill since we've started so really proud of that we're here (laughs) (laughs) well you've gone through the program your key takeaways what would you say to encourage somebody who was like you a year ago listening to this program? Just do it. If you have a great idea and you believe in it, go for it. And this program, it was truly, truly valuable for me to really just hunker down on what I needed to do on how to pivot my business. And also the resources that you get from this program are absolutely incredible. Our resource book was like from accounting, to marketing, to tech support, to legal counsel, all these things that, you know, if you're a small business owner, especially somebody that's just really, really fresh and has never dabbled into opening up a business, these are things that you need to know. And a lot of those things cost a lot of money. And for small businesses, the amount of money that you have to even start up Especially for women-owned businesses, you're getting loans from family, friends, you know, no bank wanted to give me money. They were like, oh, diaper service. It was extremely, extremely hard for me. So any woman out there that needs help, needs guidance, go for it. And the community, the sisterhood that was created with Hawaii Founder Program, I mean, I have lifelong friends now that I, you know, I'm, I'm... super, super grateful for that I met these women that were just like me, Uh, women that had a dream, that wanted to make these dreams come true, really, really brilliant ideas, mothers. So just to be able to connect with women that were like me, that looked like me, was extremely powerful, especially during the pandemic when all of us were so isolated. I'm so grateful that I heard them talking about it on HPR, and I listened, and I just, I'm so thankful for it. So any girl out there starting a business, all you mamas, you can do it. Encourage you, 
just go for it and get all the benefits. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. They do a great job, those folks. That was the Conversations Nillian Song with Melelani Jones, owner of Kokua Diaper on Maui. Her mantra is Malama Aina, one diaper at a time. Hawaii Founder is getting ready to start its next cohort for uh, female-led uh, businesses. The deadline to apply is this Friday, July 15th. We'll share links on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. A mosquito birth control project is a step closer to getting underway. But the idea of introducing millions of certain types of the critters is bugging some in the community. The idea behind this is that mosquitoes carry certain bacteria that may help save threatened and endangered birds, some that may go extinct over the next few years. Um, it may also reduce the mosquito population known to be carriers of dengue, which affects humans. The Department of Land and Natural Resources is looking at this type of mosquito control, which is new to Hawaii. Earlier this month, the Department of Agriculture gave the tentative nod to add the names of three mosquitoes on the import list. We talked to DLNR Cynthia King, an entomologist with the Division of Forestry and Wildlife, to learn more about the project. Mosquitoes are not native to Hawaii, and they vector diseases both to people and our native wildlife. So that threatens public health, it affects our native ecosystems, and, and it affects our economy as well, which relies on tourists wanting to come vacation in a beautiful place and be safe. But the reason that DLNR is interested in this is because mosquitoes are, at present, the number one threat to the conservation of our native forest birds, many of which are on the brink of extinction. And that's because these mosquitoes vector avian malaria and that is a disease which causes death in honeycreepers and native forest birds very quickly. Once a mosquito bites a bird and transmits this disease, birds can be dead in days. Well, a lot of other threats to their habitat have been abated in that we've been able to put up fences to reduce the impacts from invasive ungulates like pigs and goats. And we can do put out traps for rats and things that, you know, prey on them in their nests. There's not been a lot that we could do for mosquito control. And that's because a lot of controls that you would use for mosquitoes would be chemical. And the places where these forest birds are are up in our native high elevation intact forest, which has a whole community of native diverse, not just birds, but an assemblage of native invertebrate species as well. And so you can't go out and treat with chemicals and not expect to have really significant potential non-target impacts on other native species, many of which are also threatened or endangered. We've done stories about the, the, the situation on Maui and the relocation of the QEQ, and, and sadly, uh, many of those birds that they did transfer over there, thinking they were protected at those elevations, the mosquitoes were up there. Yeah, well, and that's the problem is there used to be, I guess, what we would call a more clear mosquito line. Mosquitoes are insects and most insects are temperature limited. Temperature affects their biology. And so for mosquitoes, they can't reproduce and have their larvae survive if temperatures are at a certain level. But what's happening as we're seeing, you know, global climate change and rising temperatures at lower and higher elevations What's happening is these mosquitoes are able to move into these high elevation refuges where our native forest birds have been able to persist, keeping in mind that most of our lower elevation species have all gone extinct because of these diseases and other predators that they've been dealing with. High elevation refugia are now being invaded by mosquitoes very quickly as the climate's changing. What DLNR and Department of Health are interested in utilizing for mosquito control is something called incompatible insect technique which is a really promising new tool. I guess I shouldn't say it's new. It's actually something that was researched in the 1960s and used for the first time and demonstrated to control mosquitoes back then in a safe, targeted, efficient way. And the way it works is that insects carry different bacteria inside of them that can influence their biology, which is actually the case with a lot of species, including mammals and humans, for example. Our bacteria really integrated into our bodies and essential for our survival in some cases. We don't appreciate it, but they can influence everything from how we fight infections how we digest our food. And I've used this example a lot of times, but just like some people might eat Activia yogurt to get bacteria to help them digest their food even better, we can use bacteria as a tool to reduce mosquito populations. And that might sound weird, but that's because in insects, including in mosquitoes, there are these bacteria that affect their reproduction. So a mosquito can carry with it a certain type of bacteria that makes reproduction with other mosquitoes impossible. And that's the case even if it's the same species of mosquitoes. So this difference in the bacteria alone can make them sexually incompatible. 
And so the approach of using a mosquito with a different kind of bacteria to control other mosquitoes can be referred to as birth control because the mosquitoes can still mate and they can actually still lay eggs, but those eggs won't hatch. So the concept isn't new, it just would be new to be used in Hawaii. That's correct. And the bacteria that the incompatible technique uses is called Wolbachia. And Wolbachia is a naturally occurring bacteria, which is present in over half of all insects that are terrestrial worldwide. And it's already present in a lot of species in Hawaii, including mosquito species, as well as tiny fruit flies that are buzzing around in people's kitchens and leaf hoppers on plants in our yard. So, you know, what we're looking at is actually using a species of mosquitoes that is already present and distributed across the whole, you know, the whole state, but giving it a different strain of that same bacteria that doesn't typically carry so that it would be incompatible with the wild type. And again, there is no genetic modification. There is no genetic engineering that is involved with this process. And that's the reason we selected this technique. And I think a lot of the testimony that we heard and concerns that we heard from the public were believing that this technique actually is a genetic engineering or that the organism itself would be GMO, and that is not the case. And that's the reason we turned to this approach. Well, there are, I guess, a number of people out there who, you know, saw the initial stories and are worried, you know, oh, gosh, are they going to bring millions of mosquitoes into the state? Uh, you know, and they see them as pests. And then some of them are vectors for things like dengue. So, you know, how do you deal with these things? Because So, so what do you say to the people out there that are, are a little nervous? This technique is so safe. And one of the reasons it is, and I didn't mention this earlier, is because the only mosquitoes that we're releasing are males. And the nice thing about male mosquitoes is that they do not bite, they do not blood feed. The only mosquitoes that bite are females, and that's because they need blood meal to make their eggs. So incompatible insect technique actually relies on releasing a large number, and it could be in the millions, of male adult mosquitoes. And the reason that that is effective is because those mosquitoes, once they would be released on the landscape with an incompatible bacteria, the wild female mosquitoes that are on the landscape would mate with those, but those eggs that result from those pairings would never hatch. And so if you do releases of male mosquitoes, again and again, several times over, then you'll see a big crash in the wild-type mosquito population on the landscape. The male mosquitoes that we'd be releasing with the incompatible bacteria, they only live for a couple days, just long enough to mate with those females, and then they die out on the landscape as well. Right, so folks are worried about, you know, more day biters or night biters. Really, when you bring these males in, they don't bite, (laughs) and you may actually then uh, reduce the population of the, the biters. Absolutely. And that's the goal. And that's what's been demonstrated again and again in all of the places where this approach has been tried. So incompatible insect technique has been studied extensively. It's backed by science. And certainly in testimony, people were concerned that Hawaii was somehow being used as a testing ground. But that is not the case because, again, this approach has been used all over the world. And even within the United States, already trials for EPA registration, for example, for applications have occurred in California and Florida and Kentucky. And so Hawaii is not being a testing ground at all. It's just the next place where we hope that this tool will be available for management. And so give us a time Um, frame of what happens now and where do you get these mosquitoes or the bacteria? Well, I'll point out that I was actually on the conversation speaking to a previous host about this in 2017. And I think we all hoped that we would be farther along at this point in time. But it is important that all of the steps being taken, including the approval of the import of the mosquitoes through the Department of Agriculture, as well as undertaking the first steps of all the environmental compliance. And also that the mosquitoes have the opportunity to be, I guess you'd say, inoculated with the incompatible bacteria. So what had to happen is collaborators at multiple institutions on the mainland have been working using mosquitoes that we provided from Hawaii in order to make them as similar as we possibly could. We provided mosquitoes from locations across the state to collaborators who then created male mosquitoes that would be incompatible with our mm-hmm. local wild type. So, so um, where, 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 where and, do they do And they, do they this? have to do many, many stages of testing to verify that they are indeed incompatible. So they're doing lots and lots of lab trials again and again, replicating to make sure that they're incompatible. Initial applications would be very small scale to just inform how we would move forward with larger scale management. And the goal would be to try these or to do initial work in the areas where we hope to target for control of mosquitoes, which is in endangered forest bird habitat high up on Haleakala 
and on Kauai and the Alakai Plateau area. But we wouldn't be doing any of the large-scale management until the environmental assessments are completed, and they are being undertaken right now at this time. That was entomologist Cynthia King, who's been working on this mosquito control project for several years now. DLNR is hoping the importation of mosquitoes will help reduce the population uh, in an effort to save critically endangered native birds. There will be additional opportunity for public input during the environmental review process later this year. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, committed to the health and safety of guests, welcoming Kama'aina and visitors, featuring sunset views from the re-envisioned pool deck. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. Next time on The World, a fishing family in Sonora, Mexico, once sold sea turtles for their meat. Now they measure the endangered animals, weigh them, tag them, and release them back into the sea. It's become a family project, helping sea turtles to navigate climate change, poachers, and fishing nets. We sail with the Tortugueros, or Turtle Wranglers of Kino Bay. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And today, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a critically endangered honey creeper found only on Kauai. Here's your Manu Minute. Akeke'e is a critically endangered Hawaiian honeycreeper found only in the highest elevation forests of the Alakai Plateau on Kauai. They're about four inches long and greenish-yellow with a black mask around their eyes. Their bills are slightly crossed, which helps them grab insects and spiders from dense liko of ohia trees. Akeke'e are a poster bird for the detrimental effects of global warming on animals. They can die from the bite of a single disease-carrying mosquito, and as temperatures warm every year, these mosquitoes are invading their last high-elevation refuges. Recent research has shown that as their population has decreased through the years, their songs are changing, too. In the 1970s, they sounded like this. And now they sound like this. Most likely because there are now fewer akeke'e that the young birds can learn their song from. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Waiakea Water Kokua Initiative, dedicated to helping in the areas of education, conservation, and kupuna care throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Learn more at waiakea.com. Nearly 40 years ago, a tract of pristine ohia forest in Kalapana on Hawaii Island was slated to be cut down and shipped for a proposed biomass energy project. Outcry from environmentalists and uh, ecologists eventually paused the project, but not before 900 acres of ohia had been bulldozed. Many called the event a tragedy, but it also provided the perfect conditions for a natural experiment. Would this forest recover? Would native species return? The conversation Savannah harriman Pote went to Kalapana to see for herself. Hang on to your microphones. <laughs> okay, keep in mind, I set out to visit a tract of native forest in Kalapana that was clear-cut in the 1980s. Acres upon acres of trees were reduced to roots by bulldozers, a total reset of the landscape. Given the area's history, I didn't really expect to find myself under the thick shade of an ohia canopy and wading neck deep through undergrowth. Hey, one more time, Plant. Hang on your microphone. No, we're almost there. <laughs> we're almost there. We are. My tour guide is Flint Hughes, an ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service, who swears that we're not lost. It's hard to believe you actually uh, work for the Forest Service when I'm watching you jump a fence. <laughs> How do you like that? Yeah. 
We've also rendezvoused at the tree line with Jim Jacoby, a recently retired U.S. Geological Survey biologist. Uh, that's the biological part of the U.S. Geological Survey, not the geology part. Jacoby explored this area, surveying native flora and fauna in the 1970s, back when it was still a pristine, lowland rainforest. And it was a marvelous forest when I came in here. It was just amazing in terms of the diversity, not only in terms of the understory of native plants, um, but also you know, the birds and, and other aspects of the community. Hugh's connection is more recent. Over the past decade, he studied the forest succession, looking at which species have come to dominate the landscape after the clear-cutting event. Though now under the authority of the Department of Land and Natural Resources, this land once belonged to the private Campbell Estate. In 1984, the now-defunct Biopower Corporation cut a deal with the Campbell Estate to harvest more than 3,000 acres worth of mature ohia trees in order to make wood chips for a biomass energy project. The area of forest that we're looking at was logged, the trees were, were removed, and the area was effectively bulldozed so that it was basically barren lava strewn with dead vegetation. Hughes first investigated the recovery of this Kalapana forest at the urging of University of Hawaii botanist Dieter Mueller Dombois. In a 1985 report requested by the Biopower Corporation, Mueller Dombois called on the Campbell estate to put a stop to the clear cutting, arguing that this particular tract of Ohia forest was, quote, the best original or primary lowland forest in Hawaii. Reading some of the literature about the forest that was here initially, one of the things that Dieter remarked about and Charlie Lamoureux remarked about, I think, was this forest was part of a intact, mature, native-dominated ecosystem that started just up from the ocean and headed up unbroken to volcano and then beyond. That was one of the kind of spectacular things about this forest. And that was one of the reasons why when it was slated to log, that got the alarm bell sounding about it and made people think about how best to convince folks it was worth preserving. About a third of the land was clear-cut before the project was ultimately paused, roughly 900 acres in total. Dennis Grossman now holds the impressive title of Senior Advisor for Environmental Science and Policy for the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. But he was still a Ph.D. student when he studied the ecological impacts of deforestation in Kalapana in the late 80s. He says at that time, it was an open question about whether native species, particularly ohia, would return. I mean, every time you would see a little seedling coming up, you know, it was a moment of joy. But I think there was, there was little doubt in, 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 in my mind and others that the forest that would come back would not be like the one that had clear-cut. It's easy to think of forests as places where things happen slowly. But Hughes says that when you have a disruptive event, be it a lava flow or a logging operation, the starting gun is fired and the race is on. Pioneering species will rush in to recolonize the new territory. Among the competitors racing to the finish line are seeds from the endemic ohia, as well as those of non-native species, like albizia and strawberry guava. My least favorite trees would have to be albizia, falcataria molucana, and strawberry guava, Cidium catalianum. Those two trees are fine as, as trees left to their own devices in their native range. Great. I'm sure I would love to see them. Here in Hawaii, I can't stand to see them because I know what they represent. They represent the elbowing out of native species across our already stressed forests, our stressed native forests. In the mad sprint of forest succession, Albizia is Usain Bolt. This tree can grow nearly an inch a day and reach heights of 20 feet in just its first year. With its umbrella-like canopy and towering form, it blocks a critical resource, sunlight, from reaching native pioneer species. If you look at the Google imagery of this area 10 years ago, you'll see these patches of albizia 
distinct across this clear-cut area, and that's where they got established. Unfortunately, they were hindered in their expansion because Ohia, Aluhe, other things captured the site, the surrounding site, so that they really couldn't spread as much as they can in other instances. While Albizia and Ohia compete for light, Jacoby says strawberry guava is different. It grows under shade. And that's a real fundamental difference. And so it can grow under a very dense shade. And so even in an area such as this where Ohia was coming up, it's easy for uh, strawberry guava to invade. In spite of these fierce competitors, Hughes' research proved promising. In just a few short decades, the clear-cut area had regenerated almost half of its biomass. The above-ground mass of the forest, which is one way to think about the forest, is how much biomass does it have, was... At that point, roughly half of the mature forest. And we knew that because we had this adjacent mature forest right up slope to measure and compare it with. So when we calculated the above ground biomass of the forest, it was in the ballpark of the large continental tropical forest that we all think of in Brazil and Latin America and Asia and Africa. And then in the regrowing forest, after 30 years of succession, or less than 30 years, we had about half the amount of biomass that had already recovered. One of the factors that sparked the robust regrowth was the soil itself, which turned out to be not so barren after all. Think about this forest as kind of warp speed because the the ground was bulldozed. It wasn't a new substrate. It was a substrate that was taken down to the ground. All of the nutrients that were in the soil were still there and available to plants that were going to recolonize. And so that's the difference between primary succession, which is totally new substrate, bare lava flow, low nutrients, rock, versus what we had here after the deforestation event, after the clear-cut, which was no plants, but the soils were still there, the nutrients were still there, and so much richer environment within which plants could reestablish and grow. So Ohia in this area is doing well. If not winning the race of succession, then at least it's on the podium. But Jacoby worries that when we look at just one species... We literally can't see the forest for the trees. You know, as we look in here, I'm looking into the forest, and frankly, I, I'm looking for native species. I see ohia. That's all I see. <laughs> the ferns are not, this fern is not native. That's not a native fern. Uh, the grasses are not native. All the other woody species uh, are, are not native. And so all we've got here, it looks like it's a forest that's coming back and it's really strong from an Ohia perspective, but the rest of it is gone. It's not there and it will not come into it. It doesn't have an entry to get into there now because everything else is closed in underneath it. Just like you can't judge the health of a forest by one species, Hughes and Jacoby say you can't think of a single tract of forest in isolation. After the clear cut, the neighboring intact forest acted as a seed source so that Ohia could return to the area. Now, this forest could serve the same purpose for surrounding areas impacted by lava flows. In some ways, a new lava flow provides a great opportunity for native forests to reestablish in areas. But, on the other hand, you've got to have seed source. You've got to have intact forest, ohia forest, what have you, providing propagules, seeds, to fly into that area and, and land and, re and begin to reestablish. One good way to preserve biodiversity in a native forest? Don't cut it down in the first place. But everything that the Biopower Corporation and the Campbell Estate did in the 1980s was entirely legal, and it still would be on privately owned land today. The forest itself, meaning the vegetation, the trees, has no protection, has no legal protection. What protects the land is zoning. That's J.B. Friday, an extension forester with the University of Hawaii Cooperative Extension Service. If land is zoned conservation, whether it's private or public land, 
then there are legal restrictions to cutting the trees and clearing the forest. If the land is zoned in agriculture, it doesn't matter if it's pristine ohia forest or if it's a guinea grass field, it's zoned agriculture. And the landowner has the right to clear that and put it into a different use if he or she wants to. This agricultural zoning can come with a pretty nice property tax break. For a long time, Hawaii County didn't have something comparable for people who wanted to dedicate their land to conservation. Friday says that meant it was more financially viable for a homeowner to clear their land and put a goat on it than it was to restore an ohia forest. That's changing. As recently as 2020, the county passed a bill to expand the types of native forest that could qualify for tax write-offs in order to encourage conservation. But Friday said the majority of our ohia forests are still found on agricultural land. The Puna subdivisions, all the way from volcano to the ocean, are zoned agriculture. So all of that forest is zoned agriculture. Any of the landowners there have the right to clear their forest and put in a coffee farm or citrus or graze livestock on it. Much of the Kona Ohia forest is zoned agriculture. Much of the Kau forest is zoned agriculture. Those forests don't have legal protection, no. The Ohia tree isn't called a pioneer species for nothing. Hughes estimates that there are roughly 290 million individual ohia trees on Hawaii Island. Even when you tally up the combined threats of deforestation, fungal pathogens like rapid ohia death, and even climate change, Hughes doubts will lose ohia entirely. What's really at stake are the ecosystems in which ohia can thrive and in turn keep our environment healthy. I, I don't know that the consciousness about the relationship between healthy forests and healthy watersheds and clean, abundant drinking water, I don't know that people have quite made that connection. That's needed for us to really manage forests in the way that we should be. That was U.S. Forest Service ecologist Flint Hughes and retired USGS biologist Jim Jacoby on forest recovery in Kalapana. They were out in the field with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope. to go now, but up tomorrow, an in-person conference at the Hawaii Convention Center gets underway this week, and it draws a couple thousand attendees. We haven't seen that for a while. We look at what's ahead for future bookings. We're always looking for your feedback. What do you think about the new masking policy in our schools? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And find all of our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.